Oi, todo mundo. Bem-vindo a Views on View. Uh, eu sou Lindsay Wardell. Eu sou o host hoje. Uh, I'm going to switch to English now. Just wanted to throw out some Portuguese. Welcome to Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. Uh, with us today is Steve Edwards. Hello from the very going to be sunny and hot Portland. Luke Diebold. Hello from Australia. Solomon Aseme. Hi, everybody from Nigeria. And special guest today, Mariana Piccolo. Welcome, Mariana. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm speaking from Brasilia. And for those who weren't aware, that's why I started the show with Portuguese. I'm just really excited to have somebody from Brazil on the show that I got to use that with a bit. So welcome, Mariana. Thank you. I actually love you speaking Portuguese, just for, for, for the record. Obrigado. So Mariana, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of talk about how you got into programming a bit? Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Mariana, Mariana Pico. I, I've just graduated in software engineering from Universidade de Brasília recently, like last week. I was working on my final final paper project, my final graduation project. I don't know how you say that in here. So my final graduation project consisted of a kind of Web Vitals article thing to help uh, Portuguese speakers, developers to, I don't know, to help them understand performance better. So what is it reshaking? Why do we have to, why do we have to care about performance and all of this stuff? I'm speaking from Brazil. I, I'm from Brasilia and here's a beautiful cold day. So yeah. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. I am curious, though, for, for those who aren't familiar with Brazil and Brasilia, what is cold? A lot of people might think of Brazil <laughs> as being a very warm place. And since I, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years, so I know that's not necessarily always true, but I was just curious if you could share what cold is. Exactly. Well, cold for us, it's like, I don't know, 20 Celsius. I don't know how do how do Celsius. You use like Fahrenheit, but we like in Brazil we all use Celsius. So it's like 20 Celsius. It's cold. 20 uh, below it's cold, and uh, I don't know. We we have periods of cold days during June and uh, July. Kind of. So, yeah, today is like a cold day here. Yeah, for, it's like so 20... it's 68 degrees Fahrenheit is cold. Yes. That sounds like my parents in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. it. Today it's a cold day. We're not used to, I don't know, uh, snow or something like that. I've never seen snow. So isn't it, uh, you're Southern Hemisphere, so isn't it winter where you're at now? Yes, actually... May and June are the coldest months right now. So uh, September is like hell and uh, it's so <laughs> hot. September, October, and uh, we don't have rain in this in this month. Like uh, starting at April, going through, I don't know, September, we don't have rain. So it's all dry and uh, 
in the, the beginning of the period, it's cold. And at the end, it's hot like hell. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so what's hot like hell? Is that like 40 degrees? 38, 36, 38 it's, it depends. Lindsay actually th- uh, commented she lived in Goiás, right? Yes. And, and uh, Goiás is one of the hottest states here in Brazil. So I think she's aware of, you know. <laughs> right. There was, there was, a, there was at least one day I was there that got up to uh, 45 degrees Celsius. Whoa. Okay. Dang, that's toasty. Yeah, it was very toasty. Got a bit of a sunburn that day. Great. So, Mariana, would you mind talking about how you got into programming as well, and in particular, what brought you into Vue, but I'm curious just your your journey into programming in general. Well, I've I've always been that person that, I don't know, I, I always like to, I don't know, install Linux distros and all of this stuff, and then I decided to pursue a bachelor's degree here in Brazil, and uh, actually in college, I started to learn programming, but in college, we learn a lot of different languages and frameworks and uh, we kind of experiment a little bit of everything so i've worked with backend uh, with java with c c sharp and all of these things but um yeah i've previously on my first internship it was my first uh, experience in the i don't know working with a team and delivering some features and working on a real product so I was working with Angular. It was Angular 2 at that time. I've never worked with AngularJS, thanks. So um, I started with Angular and Java on the back end, and I was feeling like, I don't know, I, I don't understand anything of this backend thing, like uh, databases and Docker images and all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, maybe I should try something different. And I remember at that time, I was just, I was just a kid, you know, I was learning a lot of things. And uh, I remember that I've crossed the frequent camp and uh, I was learning basically HTML and CSS. And I was like, hmm, this thing is fun. I like this thing. And uh, Vue.js was more like something that just happened. Some people uh, asked me to work with them in a, another company with a real with a real project. The project was written in Vue.js, and I was like, okay, maybe maybe I can try this thing. And uh, actually, I've loved Vue.js. I think for a beginner, maybe you can, if you want to learn a framework after learning HTML and CSS, maybe you can jump into Vue, learn Vue, because Vue is so friendly. And uh, then you can jump into another frameworks and libs like a React or something. So, yeah. I think if I had learned Vue before Angular, I was a happier person at that time, but it's okay. Yeah, I went through that same order where it was Angular first and totally did not click and then went to Vue and everything seemed to make sense. Was it AngularJS, the first Angular? Uh, I believe it was Angular 2. I, wait, there's, mm. a just, there's a just Angular? What does that mean? Yeah, it's like the first Angular ever made and... Uh, it's deprecated now, I think. And uh, oh, okay, so like Angular one, yeah, it was, yes. it was Ang- Angular two at the time, and just weird. But that mm-hmm. first moment, I don't know if you remember that first moment where you have like a number in an input field, and then a number somewhere else on the page, and then as you update it on the input field, it updates somewhere else on the page. Just that reactivity. The it first was time amazing. I did that, the <laughs> was amazing. I was like, oh my gosh. 
this is amazing. This is perfect. Am, am I like a, a magician or something? This is amazing. And uh, it's yeah. so friendly. It's so easy to learn that maybe people should, I don't know, switch to view first and then understand some com complex concepts of React and Angular. I don't know, just my personal opinion. Okay, so guys, I'm, I'm the only one that I've never, ever used Angular before. So I don't know how it looks like. I don't know what it feels like. I'm not listening. <laughs> Consider yourself fortunate. Yeah, at, yeah. Least, at least with Angular JS. I can't speak for you know Angular 2 and beyond, but uh, um, yes, Angular JS was painful. Yesterday I tried out React and to be sincere, I don't like it. So in other words, you didn't have a good reaction to it. <clears throat> it was so bad, like the old just the way it is, like the component, the way it is, the whole JavaScript, and even in styles, you use JavaScript. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, I'm going back to Vue, like, straight up. I'm going back to Vue. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. I think Vue is nice. It, it's an easy way for somebody new in programming to get into the modern frameworks because it feels like you're just writing HTML and CSS and everything, just like you normally would. And you get the benefits of the modern framework and it's giving you the components and it's giving, it, it's just so, it's so comfortable to get started with and work with. Yeah. And also, I don't know, React is so open, so free. You can do whatever you want with React. So maybe for a beginner, it's not so good because they can develop some, I don't know, some biases. I don't bias is, is it like a word, like yeah. biases? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So they can develop some biases while coding and the uh, view like uh, enforces you to follow some pattern. Actually, view also has the, I mean, JSX was such a mess. The first time I saw JSX, I was like, oh my God, what is this? And uh, Vue.js is so simple because it looks like HTML. Like, uh, okay, th there are some differences because of the framework and all of those V bind things, but uh, it looks much more much more like uh, a plain, regular HTML. So maybe for a beginner, it's a better starter point. I don't know. That's funny. My This, this is tangential to view at this point, but my first interaction with JSX, I was coming from pure PHP. I wasn't using any frameworks or anything, just standard PHP files, just writing all my code. And I saw JSX and I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want because I want the template in the code and I want the language here and I want all of this because that's what I did with PHP. That's, that's how my brain was working at that time. And then I switched to view. I was like, oh, well, that's better, actually, just breaking it up just that little bit. It's, it's not a complete separation of concerns because everything is in a single file still. But just having that, that slight break and not having to worry about the oddities of JSX, like class name instead of class or HTML4 instead of 4 because you're not writing JavaScript. You're actually just writing regular HTML in the template. And Vue supports JSX, right? It does, yeah. yeah. Vue 3 does, but yeah. It does. I, I think actually with Vue 3, you could even just use like standard .js files, use the setup method and return a JSX template and just basically treat it like React. Wow. Not necessarily the recommended way to do it, but you can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can, and the JSX in view, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so just the standard way of doing things with view is really, really what I would recommend. 
Yeah, and now that there's view three, so view three with the setup method is, should I say, just like the way we had wood, but there is a little bit different. So instead of using JSX in view, I would prefer to use the setup method in view. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, awesome. And so, Mariana, we brought you on the show today to talk about a blog post that you wrote in last year, at the end of last year, talking about a massive refactor that you got to work on on a Vue.js website. And first off, I feel like just saying that massive refactor of an application inspired jealousy in a number of developers who want to do this <laughs> and weren't able to because of either a manager saying so or there were deadlines and that, that's the problem with programming, right? Uh, I was working on a project where when I came onto it, the proof of concept had gone through four iterations already. I layered on three more before we got to the point where we were considering a refactor. I mean, I was pushing for it the whole time, but we didn't have time. Uh, so I, I tried to push a refactor. It was a massive undertaking. And unfortunately, I ended up leaving the company before it was completed. So they decided to abandon the refactor and they're just going to pile more on top, which I think is more common than actually completing a refactor in in real life applications. So first off, I'm really excited that you were able to accomplish this. Uh, second, I'm really glad that you got to talk about your experience with it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, introduce the, the topic, and we can just kind of have a discussion about that, what it was like refactoring a view application and improving its performance. Well, it's a long story, and uh, you telling about uh, your story uh, into refactoring got me to remember one one little detail that I forgot to. Well, I, I wasn't going to write it about it, so I'm going to tell everyone all over the world right now. At the time, I was, you know, I'm I'm going to throw a little analogy, but it's terrible, so I, I talked through that. So, you know, that time when you're just working on your machine and, and you start to notice your your desk so messy, like a lot of piles of paper and the pens and a lot of little things that, I don't know, this thing is cluttered, it's messy. And uh, I felt exactly the same way uh, when I was uh, doing something in that project, but I never had time to go back and, okay, uh, mental note, I have to come back to this point and refactor this point because this code is terrible. But, well, we have to ship, so I have to let it settle down, settle there, and, uh, okay, maybe later I come back to, to this. But this happened a lot, like, later we come back, later we come back, later we come back, because we have to ship. So there was a time, there was a point where I sat with my manager at that time and I said to him, we cannot build uh, new features on top of this because the foundations are not good. And uh, at that time, I remember the, they just showed us, they just showed the team, the, the roadmap, and there was a lot of new features. And I was like, okay, this can never happen because, okay, this may happen, but uh, in the future, the future developers will lose control of this thing. They they won't understand. And there's one thing that bothered me much. This, this top one thing that bothered me. We didn't have software engineering practices. I know this may sound silly, but you have to establish a little bit of good practices, of good engineering practices. So 
So simple things like just uh, document your architecture and um, establish a, a code, a style code, like a, a style sheet. I don't, is it, is it style sheet? Style guide? Yes, yeah, it's a style guide. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you have to establish like a style guide for your code. And uh, because if you don't, people will just code the way they know. It's not, I'm not telling this is a bad thing, but you have to establish some patterns and some rules. Other than that, you have a little gigantic mess and uh, you have to return to refactoring progresses, processes a lot of times. And uh, this is not great. And I sat with him and I, and I showed, I, I just showed him all of these points. And uh, it's funny because I remember at that time, like a July, it was like a May, July. I don't, I don't remember. It was like in the middle of the year. And uh, I sat with him and I showed him, okay, I listed uh, in bullet points format, like, uh, okay, this is not good. Uh, this is not good. Look at this. This page is taking like 20 seconds to load on a desktop. This is not great. And we are going to make it the experience of our customers or users terrible. And this is this what we want? Of course not. And, uh, and I said to him, we cannot ship new features until we've establish the bare minimum of some good foundations. And it's kind of complicated to, to uh, define what a good foundation is because, I don't know, software is so software subjective. So, And um, also, uh, we, ha we have just received a complaint of a user in our uh, customer support, customer service. I don't know, Lindsay, help me here. <laughs> We had just uh, received this complaint of a user telling that our website was too laggy for him. And I was like, okay, we, we've reached the point. Like, uh, this is, we can't ship from here. And uh, I've, I've told him, and in the roadmap, we had a lot of big features, like uh, a whole crew and a lot of little things to help the, the real estate that was the, the business at, at the time to help those real estates to manage their visitors and all of this stuff, manage clients, manage customers. And uh, okay, we've established this point. And, uh, and I've asked it to him, can you give me two months so I can clean up this thing? Just give me some time and I, and I, come, and I will come up with a solution that we can build something on top of it because I'm not feeling great with it i'm i have this gigantic feeling of something's not right all, all of the time when i was writing code i was thinking like something's not right and uh that's how the story began <laughs> i basically told him that i should do it and uh, he bought it <laughs> that's awesome I, I feel like a lot of people listening to this should tag this point in the podcast and be like Okay, when there's a point when I need to refactor, go back and listen to how you approach this because like that's really awesome. I love that you kind of like made some key points and sort of tied it into what it means for the business as well. And uh, it's also important to note that I was acting like a solo developer. Our in our team at that point, I was doing stuff on my own. We didn't have the the big team. The HR was preparing a hiring processes. So I was alone and I was like, why don't I stop just for a little bit of time and uh, come up with a solution that will help 
everyone in the future. Because the main problem, I think, is that the application started as an MVP. But um, MVP was not the problem. The problem was that they validated the idea. The idea was good. The idea was selling. But they had to... Okay, now that we're going to sell this product, this, this product is established, this product is validated, we have to take care of this thing with more, I don't know, detail. We have to look at it and, uh, okay, we're going to maintain the, the business is validated, so now it's time to refactor. I felt like that was the point that we need to refactor. Because when you have the an MVP at the time, I think it was 2018. Yeah, I think. And uh, they were just coming up, gathering ideas, coming up with ideas. And uh, okay, it's, there's absolutely no problem to come up with an MVP and just ship it a lot of code, the most code you can. But since the idea is now validated, you have to, okay, take a step down and uh, let's, you know, take care of this thing, this mess that it's becoming. So, yeah. So, a couple of questions. So, I know what you're describing is something I dealt with at a very large corporation that I worked at a while ago. And the joke that my boss and I had, uh, a friend of mine, was basically our, uh, pr our process was ready, fire, aim. So in other words, get ready. Oh, let's get this. Okay, now let's go back and plan it. So, you know, thinking about the process as you describe it, where you come up with the minimum viable product and you decide, okay, this works. You know, this is what we want to do. I think I would assume it would be obvious to most people in that in a perfect world, the next step would have been to say, okay, this works. Now let's go back and figure out what's the best way to architect this from here instead of just starting to pile on the bundle of spaghetti that you've already got. You've demonstrated that the that the concept works. This is what we want to do. It's working and so on and so forth. Now let's figure out how to go back and do it. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times what, what you're going to fight against is the business side or the marketing or however you want to look at it saying, no, no, we can't stop now. We got to keep plowing forward. Otherwise we'll lose the momentum we've gained. Not realizing that by going plowing forward with your MVP as a base, you're causing so much more work down the road <laughs> than in fixing bugs. I can't remember the numbers. I've seen the numbers before about how many hours you will spend fixing bugs versus how many fewer hours you would spend if you had just gone back and done things right in the first place and addressed them way back in the beginning. So I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, you know, to a developer uh, audience at this point. Oh, and I also wanted to say that you were giving the example about, you know, how you look at your desk and you realize it's pretty cluttered and you need to do it. I've never had that problem. My desk is always perfectly neat as I look at my desk. So my question to you, Mariana, is at this point, looking back now, you know, with hindsight being 2020, how much do you think it would have cost less time to do it right from the beginning? starting from MVP versus how much time you it took you to do all those refactoring. And two, oh, I lost my train of thought there. I was basically going to say, getting to the point of, did you consider going back and refactoring? How much work do you think it, how much work do you think it would have been at the point where you started to refactor to literally start over from scratch with everything you knew versus just doing all the refactoring? I thought about that. But uh, the application was already huge. So 
uh, writing from writing everything from scratch wouldn't be practical, and uh, we would take like a, a semester just to come up with everything from zero to everything we had at that point, and uh, in a good way, in a good fashion, with a good architecture, and um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be practical. I, I thought uh, the application, as messy as it was, it was still. I still had hope and uh, we could we could still save it so we were at the we weren't at the point that we had to write everything again from scratch with we were at, at, a, at that perfect moment that uh, we can still save it we couldn't still save it and I did <laughs> yeah um you I think you might have mentioned this already but when you were refactoring um were you releasing new features as well or was it just, we're going back, we're refactoring this whole thing and putting everything on pause? Or was it kind of like a hybrid between refactoring and also implementing new features at the same time? Well, as I was a solo developer at that time, I I sat down with my manager and uh, we agreed in the... We, we will not ship new features, but I will still be available to, I don't know, solve some bugs that just appeared out of nowhere and I will have to ship to shift my focus to, I don't know, fix this buggy and all of these little things and come back to the work that I was doing. So I wasn't uh, shipping new features. I was just fixing some stuff and all of these things. So... Because if I if I had to switch my 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 focus to develop new features, fix bugs, and uh, refactor the application, I was I don't know. I think I wouldn't be here today. Now those bugs that come out of nowhere, as compared to coming from bad code, are really hard to figure out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, talking about refactoring, I had I had a similar issues in where I was working before. Now, we have this project that is live. We needed to add new features to the project. And at the same time, we needed to improve the code base of that same project. So what we decided to do is to let the one that is live to be on. I fix bugs on that one. But at the same time, I still build a new system. I build a new system using Laravel and Vue.js while the, the live one is still up. Just like having version one and version two, where the version two is entirely different from the version one. So immediately I'm done. We just uh, remove the version one, you know, make the version two to go live. That's the approach I took. I did not I say, try to change codes of the already existing one. I just let that one be there while I develop a new one. Yeah. I um in. Actually, at that time, we, uh, we, me and my manager, we just agreed in the, I had to ship some little patches, not the refactor of an entire gigantic package because it was, there was a lot of changes and we could make break our production application. So I was developing in small steps so in the first patch for example i just replaced some uh, some of the heaviest uh, libraries that that we were using the first one i took off and i remember the feeling was moment js i was like oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect 
this live uh, moment yes i think it's, it's deprecated now right uh, i remember reading some somewhere that it's already yeah I, I i think they the team said they have frozen any new development yes, and they're, yes. they're planning on fully deprecating the package once the the temporal api yes. is in place and i remember a moment was the heaviest uh, Libby on our on our heat map that I took. Uh, I, I think I have the the prints on the the article, right? Yes, I have. Moment JS and Lodash and jQuery. Why was jQuery in our project? I I I don't understand. I didn't understand. I still don't understand. And uh, yeah, I was just ripping off in the you know I was taking off in the let's see what what, what we will have at the end of this thing. Let's just killing all this this bunch of libraries here. And Moment was the first one. And it was so great. <laughs> I bet that felt good. I, <laughs> that's definitely one one of the the largest culprits, both in megabytes and as well as popularity, that's still out there causing issues. What did you switch to, uh, or did you just decide we, we're just going to use the raw JavaScript date uh, for your needs? You were on mute. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we we switched to I think DayJS. I I no DayFNS. I it's because I use DayFNS today, and I was like, oh my god, there's so many of these libraries today. So I don't remember why I I chosen uh, DayFNS, but it was great, and uh, it supported tree shaking. I guess I I I I don't remember. There was a lot of it's been a lot of time. So I've switched to DHFNS and things were still great. And uh, I think we were having just 200 kilobytes. So I think it was yeah, a victory. I've, I've never heard of that before. I've always been using Moment. So I want to know, like, how is it better than Moment? You know, I just want an overview from someone. Like, how is it DHFNS better from using Moment? Mm, we had a lot of situations that we need to manipulate dates because we had a lot of calendars and a lot of this stuff. So actually, that's a funny story because we, moments were used. I mean, the the whole library was imported in a single file just to format a date. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had to take this off. And uh, when I, I, I actually I don't remember why I, I've switched to date FNS, but I remember that we have to manipulate dates all the time. So I decided to to go with it, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good at the time. I don't remember. So that. one of the one of the big drawbacks of Moment as compared to some of these other libraries is that it was all or nothing. You know, when you use Moment, you've got to load the whole big library just to use, even if like. Mariana said, you just want to use the format function, right? So I've used, and so that's the big drawback. And they basically said, that's too much of a rewrite for us to be able to do that. And that was part of the reason they quit development. Um, whereas with something like I've used DayJS, I like, or, you know, there's DayFNS for date functions. There's various other tools out there that allow you to just do, you know, destructuring just to import the specific functionality from the library that you need for your use case instead of having to dump everything in there and, and increase your build size. Yeah. One of the nice things about date FNS is that it is based on a functional model. So rather than moment where it's more object oriented, you're using a moment instance or or even DayJS, we're using an, an instance of something. 
uh, date FNS, you pass in a regular JavaScript date object and then you manipulate it, which is following more the functional programming paradigm. Um, and because all of its functions are separate, you're only ever bringing in that one little piece that you need uh, rather than the entire library, like Steve was saying. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? The fact that um, Moment.js is all in. And what, well, actually, one thing I love about Day.js is that I'm pretty sure that they've mimicked the Moment.js API as closely as they can. And so it's pretty much Moment.js, except you can include certain things, like I think the locales or something like that are included by default in Moment.js, whereas Day.js, you have to actively include it, which drastically reduces the file size. And I noticed if you look at Mariana's article, there's a part where you actually point to a, a GitHub page that compares all of them. And interestingly, yeah, interestingly, Day.js was the smallest file size, I'm pretty sure, but I don't think it had the tree shaking capabilities of date FNS, which is interesting. So yeah, I didn't think about that when I was choosing a date library. I was like, Day.js, it's pretty much Moment.js except much smaller size. So we went ahead and used that. But yeah, it's interesting that date FNS has basically got an, it's gone even further with that opt-in approach and just, you know, allowed it to be more tree shakeable. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I didn't know about this. <laughs> I've been dealing with moments all my life. So I would definitely, and I just looked at the website. It's pretty popular. Like, there's a lot of supporters on it, and I didn't really know. What have I been reading? <laughs> all right. So <laughs> thanks, Mariana, for uh, letting me know this. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the big things is that Moment is just so popular and so easy to use because you're just bringing in one thing. So especially for, for somebody who's going through tutorials or learning how to program in JavaScript, it's so easy to just go and grab. You don't need to think about it as much. But you, you start to run into the difficulties with it, like the file size. If Once you get into a more advanced application that has performance issues, that's when you really start to see it, the problems, I think. Yeah, yeah. So... Mariana, one of the things I liked in your blog post was you used this report functionality in the VCLI to, to generate an actual map of all of the different dependencies you had. And that's how you were finding some of these things. Would you mind talking about that functionality a bit in the VCLI? I don't, I think I knew of it, especially with like the, the view GUI format, because you can see that kind of thing there as well. I had never used it standalone like this. This is really cool. And Webpack uh, has a bundle analyzer too that I think uses the same plugin. I was just chatting yes. with my boss about it because that looks like the output that we use in our Laravel yes. project. Yes, it is. You just have to generate like a bundle for production and uh, it extracts the, the this plugging, this plugging extracts this the, the, the file sizes and and actually can you can interact with the HTML that it's provided after the the build. So you can just like diving on the, the files and seeing what's heavier and uh, what can you, what can you, I don't know, throw off and all of these things. Actually, I found out through this, this report that we could drop off a whole module on, the, on our application. It was like, I don't know, two megabytes that we were, I don't know, wasting. <laughs> and um, yeah, this, 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 uh, report function functionality of Vue.js helped me to take some decisions in order to replace some some libraries, take off some some features, take off some components. And uh, we had a lot of components that 
were available across the whole application, like uh, input, for example, that you can just, I don't remember the name of this feature in Vue.js, but it's like a global import or something that you can just, I don't know, import input and it's ready. But um, this brought us this little problem that in the entire application, we were making our components like uh, global. So this would increase the, the bundle size. Um, we had a lot of components that were just using like a one page of the application, but they were downloaded and parsed and compiled uh, all the time. And uh, well, Im imagine this for a, I don't know, mobile user with low uh, internet data. So we could make a huge mess with his data. So, and yeah, I, I just, uh, I was looking at this, this uh, report. I was always taking some, some reports after making some modifications to see, to effectively see uh, what were becoming better and uh, if, if our bundle size had decreased and all of this stuff. So it was a great experiment. And also bundlephobia, I have to say that bundlephobia saved my life because I could I could find some similar libraries when the, the library I was using, the, the library that was installed in our application was too heavy. And I was like, hmm, maybe we can find another replacement. And uh, I was going through bundlephobia and uh, I was like, oh my God, calendar. And uh, I had a lot of similar options that I could choose. But uh, yeah, I, I think... Well, it's like the 80-20 rule. You have to use like 20% of your efforts are 80% of your results. So I took the, the most simple, the simplest uh, techniques that are that I found on the Lighthouse, the Web Vitals report that you use on Google Chrome. And they were like, oh, your component is too heavy. Uh, I don't know, your images are too heavy. Maybe you can compress them. And I was taking that little tips and I was using on my on my experiment because all of this process of refactoring was like a huge experiment for me. I had uh, my manager uh, said to me he trusted me that he that I could do anything that I wanted. Well, I could broke the production application but I didn't. So <laughs> yeah, I think it was a great experiment. And I don't know if I answered your question and say I just... <laughs> oh, you did. That's fine. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I, I think I'd heard of bundle phobia before. I've never used it, though. That's... I've certainly That's a really it. cool project. Yeah, Mariela, you said you replaced uh, in your article. You said you replaced the um, view toaster too, right? So, but you didn't mention what you replaced it with. That toaster was ah, it's actually a funny story because that toaster was importing uh, jQuery in our whole project, like. We were importing the whole jQuery library just to show some toasts, and uh, I was actually—I don't know—I I, when I when I faced some library that was 
that mm, okay, this have like uh, 200 kilobytes and 300 kilobytes. Maybe I could replace it with something. And I was just searching, and usually I I I I'd go through bundlephobia, find uh, find this this current library like view chaser true, and um, I was going through bundlephobia suggestions, but I I was also researching on my own, so I could find uh, maybe. Maybe I could find some some library that was I don't know in some ways better or could attend my my needs better, and um, yeah, that's pretty much my my thought process on replacing some some library. Actually, I just wanted to remove jQuery from our project. So, I mean, that <laughs> seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, <all> right. <laughs> what were some of the things you did to eliminate? extra code that was in the application that your team had written rather than looking at just packages and uh, bundle sizes. What, what I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it. How did you look at either code you weren't using or code on your side that could be improved for better maintainability, things like that? Well, it took me some, some months to sense the application to feel like something wasn't in the right place. And I don't know. I, 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 well, as I was the oldest developer in the in the team, I was seeing a lot of repeated examples of code that people were just copying and pasting. I, I, I'm, I, I'm to blame too because I did that too. So sometimes you just copy and paste, and it's okay, just shape and the. But sometimes you have to come back and the. When there's a lot of code duplication, you have to do something about it. One thing that I've studied a lot was mixings. And um, I don't remember the other thing. I, I think it's mixings. Like you have the, this whole piece of code like a, with your JavaScript and you export it with a, a different file and you can import it uh, in a lot of files, in a lot of different files. So I've used a lot of mixings. And one thing I did... <laughs> I deleted a lot of code. I was just deleting and cleaning and uh, I don't know, I felt it felt so messy and uh, maybe I could break something, but if I but if I eventually break something, I, I would go back and I don't know, find a, a better way to, to approach a solution. But uh, if it was repeated, I was deleting it. Or I was creating a more reusable way, like a mixing. I don't remember the other the other solution in Vue.js. It was a mixing, and um, I don't I'm remember. Not, I'm not sure if this is one you used, but when I was doing a refactor, we used the extend property. In yes, a, yes. Was that yes, it? Yes, 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 yes. yes. I, I just don't remember. It's been so long that I don't work with a Vue.js code, so... I didn't even remember, but I remember that I was just, I don't know, let me just look at this code. Oh, one thing that, I, that I've that i learned uh, during the, this process is that I would go to Google Chrome in our product application, a production application, and I opened the console and I was navigating, and I was navigation on the page and interaction with some stuff. And uh, with my console opened, Google Chrome has that feature that you can see that you can actually see the code that is that it's not being used. I think it's coverage. I don't I don't remember the the exact name, but you can see uh, CSS and and JavaScript files that 
are not being used in your application. So I would take advantage from that. I was just navigating and searching from something that I could replace. But there's actually one thing to notice that I didn't do all of this process, uh, this process every time because it was so cumbersome that maybe it was not worth the effort. So that has to be a balance. So I, I just did this with, um, I don't know, some parts of the code that was just really messy, but uh, some styles, I don't know, a, a class repeated through five files or something. It wasn't worth it. So like I was just going through the, the heaviest things, the, the things that were most problematic. One of the things that I, I've noticed why was I was researching and learning about all of these things was about lazy loading. And uh, I realized that we didn't have lazy loading. Why don't we have lazy loading in a SPA application? Like, why? <laughs> and uh, I, I was actually um, taking the, the, the chance and I was like, okay, I'm going to refactor the whole router file and uh, I'm going to split their the houses with um, their contexts like uh, for example we had um, we had our system uh, split in some modules some there's just an example I don't have access to the code anymore so I okay uh, just an example uh, we had like a, a module for a user a module for uh, I don't know a house or something so we had the application the idea of some modules but we didn't actually put that in practice so what i did we had all of our routes of the whole application in just one single file the, the helper because well it started as an mvp let's just put it there and put it one more and so on so on so on and when you see there's more than a thousand lines and you're like <laughs> okay now I have to refactor. And um, I decided this, this part of refactoring the helter was the most difficult one, I remember, because I was replacing and creating new files and messing around with some routes and I could break the application so easily. Actually, I broke. Sometimes I broke the application, but I was in development mode, so I just wrote back and no one could see. And... Uh, I split the split the router, so I don't know. We have a main router for a module for the users. We have a main router for a module for our houses, and then these two uh, main routers, main context routers, would uh, connect to our biggest, our root module, our root. Um, how can I say our root router file, and. Uh, yeah, it will make maintenance more simple because when you, I don't know, uh, switch th these responsibilities, you just, okay, now I'm going to work on the user's module. So I know where the routes are. I know where the components, where the components are because also the thing that I mentioned uh, about the global components, we had some components that were just uh, related to a single module for our users, for example. So a profile user. So this component could not be uh, handled as a 
global component. So I've created also some components for some modules. Actually, I've just created some modules. And inside of these modules, there was a halter on the top level. There was a halter and there were components. So these little modules acted like a, like a whole new project inside of our biggest project. So I think it was more maintainable at that time. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I, I agree. I, I think it makes sense, know. especially because with Vue, we have this component-based architecture. Yes. Might as well leverage it to, to the fullest to, in order to make things more maintainable. Exactly. You, you were talking about a thousand-line file. I was remembering a project I worked on with a, a similar file. It was either a thousand or 1,500 lines or something. And every single deployment, we found another bug with it. And we had to go through the entire thing and try and fix it. Where if we had just broken it out into multiple components, it would have been a lot easier to maintain, a lot easier to work on, and probably a lot fewer bugs because it's easier to test. I got a question for everyone on in relation to that. Has anybody ever regretted splitting something up more in terms of view components? The reason I ask is that I can honestly say that I don't think I've ever broken something down. Um, because you know, if you've got like a large component, then you might break it down into smaller components. Um, you know, a classic example of that is like a landing page. Then you might have, you know, components for features and then components for, um, you know, cards within those features or whatever. Um, has anybody felt like they've ever broken things down too much to a point where it's annoying? That's a pretty good question. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I, I mean, do you mean just in view or just in general? Um, I kind of mean just in view. I'm guessing people have done it before in general, but I just, cause in specifically with Vue, I've never felt that. Maybe sometimes with backend code, I've gone too far, but yeah, I'm just curious to know. No, I know in, you know, in our Vue slash Laravel app, yeah, there's been times where we built some functionality in our desire to follow OOP principles. We've developed, you know, five, six layers of classes and subclasses that make it a nightmare to follow the process from a view standpoint i mean with you know parent child components and stuff like that you could easily do that as well um i'm you know i think it's safe to say that yeah there's there's easily a line you could cross in terms of too many child components and too many sub components but you know it's going to depend on the project and and the developer i'm sure speaking for myself i can't think of any time where because i try to avoid going too many levels deep uh, with view components, uh, if I if I don't have to, that's where. Uh, well, yeah. So that's just speaking for myself. I can't think of any time to answer your question. No, I can't think of any time I've done it too much in view. I think yeah, there was I'm, one time. Oh, go ahead, Solomon. Sorry. Yeah, I think I've had um, a similar issues, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say regret. I would just say it was difficult. So it wasn't a, a landing page, but it was a form. So I broke down every part of the form to a point where it was difficult to do form updates. You know, you, we have this thing that um, view states are not uh, mutable. So you cannot change their values and stuff. So it was very difficult for me to do form updates, but to add a new data, like uh, create new post or something like that was easy. But to use that same form to update to update in a post was yeah. So that's the only point I've noticed that breaking down lots of breaking down components to 
to too many levels deep, if I would say that, it sometimes can be very difficult to handle. I don't think I've run into getting too far, too much broken down in view components. The closest I got was I worked on a project where I was breaking down all of these base components to be very generic, and I created a header component. And it was just, it was basically just HTML and CSS. And it was used in like maybe two places. So I guess it was worth doing. But a lot of the the work that went into breaking up these base components, they never really got used. So that that probably was a little too much abstraction. But who knows? Maybe down the line, you know, after I left the project, it became more useful. So I, I think it's it I don't think it was detrimental to the project, but it definitely wasn't super useful to get that far broken down. I think the the bigger danger in working with Vue is when you break down the logic itself a bit more rather than the the component itself. So if you get a computer property that references another computer property that references another computer property that references the Vuex store, you can do that well. But I think that's where the the deeper risk of breaking things down into simple bits is going to be rather than at the component level. Actually, I've never thought about this. And uh, actually, I've never faced this this problem. But uh, what Lindsay says, it's it got me thinking because sometimes you are just so, I don't know, into optimization and all of this stuff. And you're like, okay, I just have to make one component. Why am I trying to, I don't know, anticipate something? Just, I don't know, just try to write something first and then you can, and then you came in and you refactor and you do a lot of these things because, you know, you can just, uh, code thinking about every single step that you have to take like oh my god if i write this thing i will have to refactor and put it this way maybe i put it this way maybe maybe i change this thing and you and you don't develop it so be cool <laughs> that's my advice yeah I, th i think with with writing components and stuff instead of that don't repeat yourself mentality that we all have i, I liked the the alternative to it of write everything twice so instead of dry uh it's wet So you're writing all of your components twice. You write it once the first time. And then if there's something to pull out and abstract, if you're doing it the second time, that's the right time to do it because you know what the pattern is going to be. You know what the API should be for a given component at that point. There was, there was a fun side project I was working on, just the simple Next site. And at first, it was just one long component because I was just exploring. It didn't matter. But eventually, I needed to repeat some code. And once I was writing it two or three times, It, it felt comfortable to break it out into a separate component. And I think that can avoid that over-abstraction because you see exactly when you're wanting to do it, when it's going to be a pain point if you don't. That is such a great point. I love that point. And especially when you're starting out, you, you, end up with like, you can end up with huge amounts of spaghetti code. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're new because you gradually start to realize through that spaghetti, it's like you get that frustration. And then you start to you start to think, well, how can I deal with this frustration? And so I really like that idea of wet. Actually, that's that's really cool. But I probably don't I probably don't go that far. It's probably more like three or four times. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I like that. Well, I mean, if if you pretend three or four is one word, it still works, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Oh, go ahead. I did, have, I, I did have one more question because okay. I didn't want to miss this because I feel like this kind of brings the whole story together. And that is, how do you maintain a foundation of code quality moving forward after doing a refactor like this? 
because the worst nightmare would be I've just done all of this hard work and now all of my colleagues are basically just going to like destroy the whole thing. So how do you make sure that you maintain, you, you hinted at it before, I think with like documentation and architecture, but could you speak a little bit more on that? Sure. Yes. The answer is documentation because I think you have to, I don't know, educate your developers, your teammates to follow a kind of pattern because other than that, you have just a spaghetti again. And uh, to, about establishing the foundation, it's just about teamwork because one thing that we didn't do at the time was uh, code review. So when the new developers arrived, I started this culture of code review and uh, how do how do we review a code? How do how do we look at a code? And also one thing super important is that we have to have a documentation. I mean, you don't have to be like uh, the perfect documentation of like a, a hundred pages, so nobody will never read. And uh, but um, you have to. I don't know, document the, the thought process, the the idea of this application of how it is going to grow. So, for example, documenting the architecture. I, I didn't have time to do that because my manager was like, okay, now we have to develop some new features and let's go. And I was like, okay, sometime I come back, I come back and write some documentation, but I couldn't. So I and one thing I felt when I left the company was like oh my gosh, I, I'm just leaving and I'm taking with me all of these things that I've learned, all of these things that I've known, only I know about the whole application. So you have to have the documentation. You have to establish a good process of code review. You have to have some, some levels of quality established. Uh, what I mean by that is you have to have like a, a style sheet, a documentation about for example, the, the architecture, what components makes this page and why is this page like this and not like that? So um, these little things makes the difference. And also I've I've learned how to work with GitLab CI. And one thing I've learned is that I will never be a DevOps. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it took me like one week to just make the, the GitLab CI processes to, I don't know, uh, run some lint. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I will never be a DevOps. And yeah, I think prepare your team. The most uh, important lesson that I've learned about the, after this whole process is about writing documentation, write something. You don't have to write everything, but you have to guide your new developers to think how you think. And it's not to be established like a rule, like it will never change. Like this documentation, no one no one touches and no one edits it and it's being like that and you have to follow. No, you have to establish like a basic foundation and then your team and uh, your team discussing through code reviews, you get those insights and you're like, okay, maybe we can change this in the documentation. And uh, this is what software engineering is about. So... Yeah, I'm kind of poetic now. So <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's think, wonderful. So um, you mentioned something about you, you called it style sheets, right? But it's called style guide for us here. So for us to maintain quality around developers in our team, what we have is a style guide. 
So a style guide basically shows the developers different things about how the project or how the code base is uh, run. So it shows things like naming function, how you should name your function, if we are using comment keys or not. And then it also documents how you should name your variables and every other thing that basically describes the entire project and the code base. So if the developers can follow up with this style guide, then the, the quality of the project will be maintained. Totally. I, um, well, I can only speak for myself and for my experience, but uh, when I arrived at the project, there was a lot of different patterns that uh, different developers took during some time of maintenance or creating a new feature and so on. So that's why it's important for you to have some basic ideas established. So maybe something like, well, this component makes the this halter, for example, a good example is to write a documentation about the big split on the on the router that I did. So uh, new developers could uh, understand why I did that and uh, uh, build uh, uh, new features and fix bugs on top of this. So I think it's, I don't know, it's a game game for everyone. <laughs> a good game for everyone. Yeah, I, I really like tools like ESLint and Prettier for that kind of thing as well. Exactly. Um, whether you're able to run it locally or not, depending on the on the rules of the project. Mm -hmm. um, but it helps establish that single unified pattern that developers yes. will be using. Mm -hmm. um, as long as it's you funny. don't then as long as you yes. don't then devolve into debating what those rules should be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we had ESLint uh, established on the project, but the rules were so soft. I think at some point someone look at, looked at those rules and was like, I'm not going to follow this thing. Let me just soften these rules and let's just code. And uh, it was one of the problems because I remember clearly that uh, our props uh, based uh, in our components, the props, were not using that, that kind of typing thing that Vue offers. Even if you're using a regular JavaScript that you can type your prop like, uh, okay, I'm receiving a name, so this name it will be a string and the string must, must be passed. Other than that, we receive an error. So we didn't have this kind of rules. It was so flexible that we didn't have this kind of validation. So this could lead to potential problems. And that's why I strengthened them and configured the linter on RCI. And it was a shame for me to making things on the, the GitLab CI. I will never be a DevOps. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mariana, thank you so much. It's foi um bom tempo com você. At this point, we will move on to picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? 
And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Picks are the part of the show where we share things that we like with the community. It doesn't have to be programming related. And I will start with Steve today. Uh, Steve, what is your pick for us? Well, today is a sad day in the history of dad joke sources. In that, my favorite source, which was an Instagram account called Stand Up T-Rex, is gone. And I just went there yesterday and it is no longer there. It says this account no longer exists. And so I'm still in my 30-day mourning period as as, uh, prescribed by the uh, dad joke consortium. But... So I'm, I'm looking for, for other sources. So I found a, found a couple, so I'll share a couple real quick. Oh, and, and just as a little bit of context for this one, for those of us old enough to remember, Blockbuster used to be huge. You know, you go and rent your DVDs, and if you remember back this far, VHS tapes. But because of Netflix and video streaming and the internets and all those great things, Blockbusters had gone by the wayside, except except for one in Bend, Oregon, in Central Oregon. And there's even been a documentary on the last remaining blockbuster. I believe it was on Netflix, Irony of Ironies. And so this joke becomes uh, a little more relevant, but uh, I went to the local video shop a little while ago and asked if I could borrow Batman forever. And they said, no, you have to bring it back tomorrow. So I was pretty bummed. And then uh, I have a a 10 year old and I told him the other day, uh, go to bed, the cows are sleeping in the field. And he said, what's that got to do with anything? I said, well, it just means it's past your bedtime. So anyway, and then for those of us you can't hear, everybody is dying, laughing hysterically. They're just on mute. So how do I get the cow one? It's very true. It's past your bedtime, you know, a pasture. Oh, oh my gosh. (laughs) gosh. Luke, I'm going to have to start putting explainers in the chat for you when I tell these jokes because you always seem to have problems with them. Oh my goodness, muting myself again. <laughs> yes, and then my uh, my last one is a little rant, and it's more of a question for Apple. And you know, I use the MacBook Pros. I have a personal one, and then one for uh, for my employer as well. And I still have yet to understand why, in a multi-panel display, you cannot anchor the taskbar or the dock to one screen. It is constantly flying all over the place on me if I want to keep it on the bottom, and I have to pin it to the side which makes me feel unbalanced, if you know what I mean. So Apple, please fix that at some point because there's lots of questions out there about it. Thank you very much. Pretty sure that most Apple employees listen to this podcast, so they'll get onto that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. It's crazy popular in Cupertino. Awesome. Uh, Solomon, do you have a pick for us today? Oh, I, uh, yeah, I have something to say. So right now, I am currently writing a book on architecting enterprise ready Vue.js applications. So in the book, I'll be discussing about how you can manage and develop an enterprise application using Vue 3. We'll be talking about things like GraphQL, Docker, how you can scale and manage your large Vue.js applications. So it's currently on development and it will be published with facts publishing. So I will in this podcast, so if you are listening to the podcast, you should continue because I will be dropping the pre-order link and a lot of percent off <laughs> when it drops. So, or you can follow me on Twitter and you can also get it from there. So, yeah, that's my pick for today. Thanks. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. 
Luke, do you have a pick for us? Yeah. So it's no secret that I'm a massive Quasar fan. And oh, I'm really? Actually got a I podcast. didn't know. <laughs> and I, Quasar? Yeah, Quasar, the greatest framework on the planet. It'll blow your mind. It still blows my mind. Anyway, let's not get too tangential. But um, It's out of this world. Yeah, that's right. It's out of this world over in the... Mm, um, that's a good try, Lizzie. I didn't hear what you said, Luke. Yeah. What, is it a framework or what? Yeah, it's a, it's a framework. So it's basically a framework that uses material design. I did a podcast in it. It's actually how I ended up on the panel. <laughs> so yeah, you can go back and listen to that. But my, um, today is kind of a shameless plug. I've been doing the Quasar Life podcast which is actually less about Quasar and more about just the life of a web developer and things I learned along the way, some of the stuff that I've learned about motivation and like routines in my life that helped me to become a better developer and to maintain uh, focus when I'm working, stuff like that, just kind of like the life behind being a developer. So it's not very code heavy, at least most of the time it's not. It's more like the mindset behind being a developer. So if you like um, talking about that kind of stuff, then check out the Quasar Life podcast. Okay, I'm checking that out right now. Yeah, make sure there's a link in the show notes for that as well. Mariana, você tem um pico para nós? I just love you speaking Portuguese. Like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I have, and uh, it's my own work, so I'm going to promote myself here. Uh, This is my uh, guia de otimização no front-end. So, as I mentioned before, it's uh, the result of my paper, my final paper for graduation. And um, it consists of a a huge catalog, web dev-like, to help uh, uh, Brazilian or Portuguese developers, developers who speak Portuguese, to learn a little bit more about uh, performance and performance optimization and some some terms like uh, tree shaking and lazy loading. And uh, maybe it could be a, a good read for our Portuguese listeners. <laughs> and for you too, Lindsay, yes, I, know yeah. you, I know you speak Portuguese. This is very interesting. I'll I'm having so much fun speaking Portuguese. I apologize to everyone who doesn't speak it. Just having too much fun here. Great. Muito obrigado. My pick today, see if I can find it again. So I have two picks. One, I'm talking to the future. So I think is less interesting because the future will have already happened. Uh, The other is just cool regardless. The first pick I have is a new plugin from from GitHub called Remote Repositories uh, for VS Code. And what that does is right now there's this problem if you want to work on a repository is that you have to clone it to your local machine, make the changes, and then push it back up and make a pull request, whatever whatever your process is there. Uh, With the Remote Repositories plugin, you can skip the clone. So you're just like using uh if if you're on windows and you're using the subsystem for linux you can remote access into the the wsl instance to use a repository you can do the same thing direct to github now from your windows or from any machine but in particular i use windows that's my experience Uh, so it feels very similar to that the only downside is you can't run any of the code locally yet um this is this is a first release so still going to be in development but you can access a GitHub repository, make changes, make a commit, make a pull request, whatever you need to do just from VS Code. So you can just have your entire workflow in VS Code without having to clone the repository. Uh, This can be super useful if 
for me, for example, I have a lot of little repositories that I don't want to have to pull and run everything. I know it's going to work. I just want to make a quick change or update the documentation, for example. So it's a, a great little tool for that. And putting in a blog post by the VS Code team uh, talking about it so that they kind of walk you through its use case when you want to use it and talk about some of the things that are coming. So that's really nice. The second thing, I know everyone is a big Mac fan, especially because of the M1. Recently, there was WWDC as of recording. And next next Thursday is an event for Windows 11 is what it's looking like. And yesterday, the uh, the build for Windows 11 was accidentally leaked and a whole bunch of different reporters installed it and have been writing articles on it. So my second pick, again, I'm talking to the future, so maybe all of this is old news and nobody cares anymore, but I care. It's really exciting. Uh, most of it is a UX change for Windows. Uh, there's not a lot changing under the hood from what they're seeing, but a lot of UI redesign for Windows, uh, moving the, the start menu and everything to be centered, kind of like on a Mac. Everything has rounded corners. There's a new design. Uh, it, it looks really nice. I'm excited about a new version of Windows. We haven't had one since 2015. So if you're a Windows user or you care about where Windows is going, you might want to check it out. It's kind of cool. So yeah, those are my two picks and hope you enjoy them. Mariana, where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation or chat about refactoring or just what you're doing right now? Well, I'm not a social media person, as you can tell, but uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think you will you'll provide the link on the, the description of this podcast, but you can also find me on GitHub and on GitHub there are my website and you can find me through there. Send me an email or chat with me on Telegram. I don't know. I'm just, I will be waiting for your, for your hellos. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure those links are in the show notes so that everyone can find it. Great. That is our show for today. Hope you all enjoyed it. If you'd like more from us, you can find us at viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. You can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebold. And you can find Solomon on Twitter at, correct me again, Solomon, if I'm mispronouncing it, it's Kapersky Guru. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. I thought it was Luke Diebold. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> all right that has been our show and i hope you have a great day and see you again next week adios Até logo. Ciao. so we're just leaving the room now i, I don't know <laughs> we're done so <laughs> oh, yeah. i i i i i i i i i i i Bye-bye, everyone, and have a great day. And I was like, is it for me? Do I have to get out? <laughs> You're good. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I'll make sure yes, to talk about that before Yes, you have to get we... out. You have your own room in your own house. We're kicking you out. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I thought it was like the clue for me to leave, you know? like a... <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.